Welcome to the Asia edition of Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech podcast. I'm Rachel Williamson. And I'm Karis Palmer. Every fortnight, we dissect the successes and failures of financial innovators and bring you the people at the top of their field working to disrupt banking. From traditional banks doing things differently to startups navigating the unforgiving world of financial services, I'm Simon Spencer, and this is Breaking Banks Asia. This podcast is brought to you by SAP Pioneer. Welcome, listeners. Today, I'm joined by my co-host, Simon Spencer, who previously hosted Breaking Banks Asia a few years ago. Today, we're doing a special episode on cybersecurity, given how bad 2022 was. And we're going to be asking, will 2023 be just as bad? Now, you work in banking, Simon. What do you think? Look, Rachel, it's great to be back on Breaking Banks. And uh, yeah, look, this is a really exciting issue and a really important one. I spent much of my career in banks, and obviously banks are on the forefront of having to deal with cyber threats. And yeah, you're right, 2022 was quite an exceptional year. Uh, And the question obviously is, is, uh, what's it going to be like this year? And is it going to get better or is it going to get worse? Uh, Or is it going to get worse before it gets better? It's an interesting topic because I think we're seeing a bunch of things all come together. You know, I don't want to use the phrase perfect storm, but I am. Uh, It is a bit of a perfect storm. You've got, you know, the rise of cloud, the move into software platforms, the sophistication of, of, of cyber attacks the prevalence of large data platforms that are uh, in some cases publicly accessible and in some cases secured via by APIs and and via by architectures that have many entry points so it's a much more complex technology landscape that we have now than perhaps we had a decade ago and so cybersecurity i think is is something that is a significant challenge for many organizations uh, particularly the large organizations with very complex um, and sometimes legacy technology architectures so um, yeah it's great to be uh, back here on the on on breaking back asia this is going to be a fascinating interview we've got two really interesting guests cybersecurity expert nick elsmore and Rene Morel, who is the founder of Zimbane, which is, was acquired by Deloitte, and uh, where he's now a partner. Welcome, Rene. Would you like to start by introducing yourself? Um, yeah, Rene. Um, I've been in uh, cyber probably a good 20 years, uh, technology nearly 30 years, so it's kind of uh, been my bread and butter my whole career. Specialised mostly in financial services, founded a cybersecurity business, and uh, we sort of exited that business and uh, joined the Deloitte family, um, where I'm kind of currently a partner in their risk assurance uh, cyber division. Thank you. You've certainly been around and uh, seen a lot of interesting stuff. I mentioned earlier that 2022 was a pretty significant year. In your thought, your your, your mind, what happened and what, in your opinion, went so wrong? Look, I think it's a it's a combination of, you know, the, the barriers to entry for hacking uh, the, the the kids that are sort of coming out of school, university, um, the the broader community, uh, you know, these the obviously organised crime and then these sort of the script kiddies. I think you have a lot more opportunity as as a malicious actor to to access these certain tools and techniques that are all published, very easy to access and, and get access to, and the information on targets. Everything's become a lot more accessible than let's say you know five years ago. So I think it's a combination of that. You know, potentially or so, you're looking at how connected everyone is now. 
and 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 everything's sort of you know the dark web is coming become you know obviously become a lot more a lot more known and a lot more popular and I think the that activity within the dark web is definitely not helping organizations because they do share information and intelligence um and threat intelligence so I think that's sort of just a you know a storm that's brewed you obviously have you know nation state actors that are or are not potentially behind a lot of these attacks that and you know that's yet to be determined in some instances so it's a combination of these things and I don't think it's a point in time specific to um you know the maturity of cybersecurity um and I think you know if, if one or two are being attacked so those that that that's of information can then lead to further attacks based on the, the the data that they held on those particular times, depending on that, that certain breach. Thinking about uh, Asia and you know, as a region, Australia seemed to have a particular challenge last year. Um, was it a good target, or was it just bad luck, or were we particularly unprepared? Uh, you know, it's it's kind of it's an interesting question. I think the cyber security maturity in Australia is actually very high generally speaking for the organizations that sort of can afford it but as you can appreciate it's not a it's not a cheap exercise by any means yep. uh, mostly driven by skill shortage so yeah I think I'm surprised by the 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 amount of attacks specifically targeting Australia at that certain point in time but I think it was more just a catalyst of one or two attacks led to further attacks I certainly don't think it's we were targeted specifically because our security tool sets, uh, the industry and capability was less mature than the rest of Asia, as an example. You sort of alluded to it earlier. Are the attacks becoming more sophisticated? It's surprisingly, a lot of these attacks is quite fundamentally easy. It's never one thing that led to a total breach. It's a combination of, I guess, issues within those environments that led to the adverse outcome. So, example, if you have one, one weakness and one flaw, they may have not gotten further if you didn't have the second and third floor. For the most part, it's it's a uh, you know quite systemic in terms of these kind of uh, these breach scenarios or what's actually happened. Like I said, the barriers to entry are very low. So if one tool doesn't work, they have an army and an arsenal of twenty other tools where they may have not had that capability and compute power in the past. You, you mentioned script kiddies earlier. Um... Do you think we can start to see, expect to see a, a wave of sort of chat GPT-powered attacks coming? I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, that's gaining a lot of a lot of uh, momentum in the market and a lot of uh, discussions. And um, I certainly think it will evolve. And I'm pretty sure an AI could write some interesting tools. You know, if it's there, yet, I'm not 100% sure. But we certainly are using AI machine learning, those sort of um, defense mechanisms. And we have been doing so in the cyber industry for i'd say probably the last sort of five years we're scanning a lot of a lot of maturity in our tool sets so it's kind of going to be a case of an ar versus an ar potentially yeah because you sort of need to be able to respond in in real time and you probably need an ai to respond quick enough yeah absolutely yeah and and like i said like a lot of it's uh sort of uh credential stuffing attacks as an example is when you know the compromised data sets of customers Generally speaking, people use the same email address for a lot of, you know, private emails, uh, accounts held by your power companies and your banks and everything else. And it's just a case of, you know, basically brute forcing some of these systems if they don't have the tools in place to prevent that. So they're kind of having a set of data that they probably wouldn't have normally had. Hence why I said there's potentially all these additional attacks. They're using yep. the same data sets. 
do we do we put too much responsibility for uh, cybersecurity on the end user? So it's always a shared responsibility, obviously. But um, are we giving uh, giving our users sufficient tools to be able to manage their cybersecurity effectively? Because uh, you know, usernames and passwords were probably never a great combination, but uh, over time they've become even more vulnerable and even more difficult to manage as as access methods. Do you see that changing at all? Do you see the the, the tools that we use and we and the resp- and the shared responsibility we we have with our, our end users? Uh, do you see that changing at all? I definitely do. I mean, you know, historically speaking, a lot of emphasis was from a cyber perspective on your staff. So educating your staff about cybersecurity. That was a trend that sort of started maybe six years ago, seven years ago, where there was a huge emphasis on your staff's, you know, um, awareness of cybersecurity and kind of threats, the things to look out for, especially phishing attacks and that sort of stuff. And a lot of simulation um, for the staff to actually experience a phishing attack. Um, Never saw a lot of emphasis on the customer side. You know, there's certainly, there's always this... uh, this this fight between business and, and, and cyber or business technology and cyber where you you don't want to impede the users too much in terms of the user experience. I think things have evolved enough that I think everyone will be very open to the idea of, you know, whatever service you use, you're using, let's say, Google or Microsoft Authenticator, because that's relatively easy. You know, in the old days, you'd have to carry an RSA token um, or someone phones you for verbal confirmation. You know, those are not practical things in today's age. But I think certainly technology is caught up where it's easy enough, even push notification, we don't have to do much other than just click, yes, okay, that was me. I think you'll see a huge push for that. Um, at the moment, I've seen a lot of companies are implementing very sort of, you know, um, rapidly, whether you want to say it's tactical, but sort of SMS verification, two-step verification. So I do see that becoming uh, a lot more emphasis. That will probably evolve, right? So, you know, um, at the moment, I think it's, it's just a lot of response to make sure there is some form of 2FA and resilience, but yeah, it will evolve more. I think there'll be more emphasis on the end user, as long as it doesn't impact the usability, the the user experience will be yep. the be the trade-off. The 2FA rollout seems to have sort of slowed down the use of biometrics a little bit. Do you see biometrics as the ultimate answer, or do you have concerns around the protection of biometric data? Because you know, it's one thing about resetting your username and password; it's another thing again to try and reset your fingerprints or your or your, your facial geometry. What yeah, are your thoughts on biometrics? If you're looking at the, I guess, the user access of these apps, especially in, in sort of very API-driven world and very application based on the mobile phone versus the old, you know, um, web front end on, on your desktop. Um, for the most part, people are using the mobile phones for everything. So I think the opportunity is really great because you have those tool sets on your mobile for fingerprinting, you know, retinal scanning, all those sort of things. Uh, ultimately, you're, you're, you're kind of relying on, if it's an Apple or Android, you're relying on those devices to be secure when you're talking biometrics. Cause ultimately it's not the, it's not the web backend that's really taking your biometrics. It's the device you have. So I think it, it, it's there. I mean, I'm seeing more and more people using bi- where, where your phone is linking to your apps and saying, well, I'll log you in with your, you know, fingerprint or just looking at your face, facial recognition. Yep. And leveraging the mobile device. But I think it's a lot more common now. And, and I think they'll be rolled out a lot more. But again, it's, it's a huge emphasis on your device. You know, um, if everything's biometric and you lose your device, you know, what's the fallback? So, so. You have to think about those use cases. 
Yeah, and we're certainly seeing sort of security fabrics rather than just sort of traditional sort of fortress approaches where, you know, you build a build some sort of large wall and access layer and then once you get in within that, it's 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 it's, it's all open. Whereas platforms like Okta and, and others are about securing the entire um, architecture. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah. So it's sort of sassy, zero trust type concepts where... And that's exactly where it's going. It's sort of like, you know, you think of microservices, but micro cyber services. Yes. Where, where you, you, you know, you don't have, to your point, one firewall and as an example, and then you have to do, you know, rely quite heavily on whatever happens inside your network, where that sort of zero trust assumes, you know, there is not, no, no real one entry to an application. It used to be that um, you kept your mother's maiden name safe and a few other things safe, and they were sort of, you know, the data you, you didn't want to have uh, published out there. In this day and age, though, you know, there's a lot of data out there, and it's it's almost the presumption that your private information is, is entirely private is probably a flawed one, um, and certainly the Australian experience of the last 12 months has, has, has shown a bit of that. So with that sort of data landscape out there and available to, to hackers, what do you see changing in terms of the approaches that enterprises use to secure their data and, and the approaches that they use to manage data? I mean, a couple of things. I think um, there's going to be a lot more in- emphasis on resilience, you know, especially under the ransomware scenario. I think a lot of companies have been caught off guard over the last number of years, especially smaller companies that get targeted where if you get ransomware, you can, you know, essentially shut your business down. So a lot of these ransomwares get paid because they don't have the data resilience. Yeah. So there's that sort of, you know, not just protecting the customer's data, but protecting the services you offer the customer. So you have that resilience in mind. And I think there's a lot more emphasis in that. Um, the, the legislation around, uh, and, and there are some amendments coming through and stuff, but I'm not sure how, how, um, forthcoming they will become. But t- traditionally the TFBN was really the only, Thing you you were forced to to mask or encrypt um, was an absolute need to know basis, and, and you know organisations typically if they can't afford it they'll do you know the bare minimum unless their security policy is mature enough to say well this kind of data classification needs that kind of protection or this level of encryption. And I think there's probably not enough emphasis on how to protect the data from a customer point of view and what you have to do versus you may want to do or you know or should do. And um, we certainly have the tools and, and the architecture to do it. It's just the mandates and the, the, you know, the legislation and or industry guidelines and standards, but no one's really pushing it where you say it's saying, unless you're getting sort of some sort of accreditation, um, it's kind of free for all unless, you know, you have to do it. And so I think a combination of those sort of policies and guidelines, um, needs to be more emphasized on the customer data. And also retrospectively applying these approaches and technologies to legacy systems is, you know, a daunting task. Yeah, definitely. Um, and look, APRA, as the, as the financial services regulator, have certainly um, taken a far more proactive and uh, sort of a, a, tighter, a, a broader lens on the cybersecurity resilience uh, of the maturity of the financial services. So within those frameworks, there is a high emphasis on customer data. Um, and, and the protection thereof. But um, traditionally, it wasn't that way. So to your point, even if it is now in some industries, you know, it's the, the retrospective change, which is sometimes very not so easy to do, especially if you, you know, an organization of a thousand apps, you know, and what's the impact of that? And where's that data held? Yeah. Um, but we certainly have the mechanisms to do it. It's just having the, I guess, the time, the prioritization and um, and the funding to do it because it's not a cheap exercise either. 
because you've got data discovery and then actually doing something with that data and ensuring it doesn't impede your your, your systems that depend on that data. You mentioned ransomware earlier. Um, what are your thoughts on cyber insurance? You know, is it a legitimate thing for an organisation to get? You know, what, what, what's, what's your thoughts on it? Where's it going? It's going to become mandatory, pretty much. Mm. Uh, cyber insurances are actually becoming that it is mandatory to include cyber insurance. You know, um, and then that's only the last couple of years. It's become, you know, if you look at some of these recent breaches. And, and uh, I think it was the Optus, and you know, um, I, I, I believe, and this may be incorrect, but I think there was talk of sort of a billion dollar write-down o- overall. When you're thinking about the sort of the the investigation side of it, the correctiveness actions need to be taken. The on the customer side, the marketing, um, you know, any any compensation, um, legal challenges, uh, the legal fees alone, you know, add, add all that up, the reputational damage. I think they it was something like a billion dollars. So. You would question why wouldn't you have shot cyber insurance in that instance? Um, you know, and, and I think proportionately to the potential financial impediment that that may happen if you have a cyber incident, you know, it certainly is is it is certainly affordable. Is there a risk that people will start paying the you know paying the ransomware or, or paying the hackers for to try and uh, attempt to secure or resecure their data? People do very very often. Uh, that, that certainly won't publicise that they paid it, you know, under the Privacy Act and the amendments thereof, and the mandatory data breaching laws. What so so you're kind of forced to make sure what you're doing is the right thing, you know, morally speaking, because a lot of people will say, well, if you're paying the ransom, where you're creating more of an opportunity for more ransomware attacks, and if you don't pay, it, then it becomes sort of a, a a culture of, well, there's no point doing it because you're not going to get paid for it. Yeah, unfortunately, people are paying it, but but I, I see. Is more and more, especially in the big brands, less of less of an appetite to pay ransomware. And I think the trick is that that cyber insurance and that resiliency put, put yourself in a position where you don't have to have ransomware. You know, you get ransomware, well, you, you're a fully resilient business. So it kind of becomes potentially a muted point if you do yep. it correctly. What's keeping you awake at night, or is there anything that keeps you awake at night? It's certainly the busiest I've ever seen in this industry. So I think I'm just be kept awake at night because I'm overworked. <laughs> but um, it, it, it is um, ne- never seen anything like it over the last year. Um, in terms of the demand for cyber, the, ma- the amount of attacks, what the federal government is doing in terms of threat intelligence sharing across industry, um, there's so many initiatives, you know, at the state, the federal government, at the industry layer. I've never seen it this active. So I guess it's not keeping me awake, but I, but I um, certainly never seen anything like this before in my career. It's keeping you busy. Yeah. Are you seeing a shift in the mix of sort of, you know, the individual hacker entrepreneurs who are trying to make a buck and, and trying to, to get a payday versus the um, perhaps, you know, script kiddies, as you referred to them earlier, versus the sort of corporate actors or, or even state actors? Are you seeing a, a bit of a shift and, and are you seeing more evidence of a state or, or corporate-driven cyber attacks? Look, to, to, to my knowledge, I've, I've never seen sort of corporate espionage type of activity going on. I'm not saying there isn't, but, um, but I, I, I guess that wouldn't be happening in Australia, typically speaking. Um, mm. It would be very unlikely, but certainly it does happen. Um, it's more organised groups of, of hackers, uh, a, a collective that are, that are more of the threat actors now. There is state-based threat actors, but, but their, their intent is probably not, not financial. Um, it's more disruptive and or intelligence driven. 
But most most of the, most of the attacks we're seeing and, and certainly dealing with are groups of attackers, so yeah. organised groups. My last question for you is: um, What do you think we should expect in in twenty twenty three? I certainly think uh, the legislative landscape is going to change fundamentally at, at pace. Um, I don't think we, from from a legislative point of view, the Australian government doesn't. There's not enough, uh, I guess, penalties applied for the, the cybersecurity incidents that happen that where the corporation is responsible for it happening. It's certainly not their fault because they were a victim, but they're certainly not doing the right things when it comes to how they manage their IT systems from a cyber perspective. Um, so, so GDPR is an example. You know, is anywhere between two and four percent of your global turnover. Um, so, the, so the appetite and at the board level to invest in cyber and do it correctly is very high compared to in Australia. I don't think the appetite is is as high as as yeah. somewhere like in Europe. So, I think legislation will change. Um, and, and I think those penalties will, uh, my gut feel is increased significantly, where, where the emphasis and the, the priority will, will be front and foremost at the board level. I think there's going to be, and there is already a huge push in filling the, the workforce gap in cyber. So there's a lot of institutions, Deloitte as an example, has the Cyber Academy where we're bringing in, you know, the kids out of year 12 in a three year program to earn and learn. Um, and, and it's being sponsored at the federal and state level. Um, so there's a lot of, it's, and universities are doing the same thing. Other companies are doing the same, similar things. So building that sort of next generation workforce um, is certainly a huge emphasis for everyone in the industry because we all know we don't have enough, you know, experienced uh, people in the industry. So a huge emphasis on um, talent, uh, stock retention, stock acquisition, um, and building that next generation. I think those are, you know, some of the, some of the key things we'll see. Thank you very much for your time today. No worries. Great to see you again, Tom. Now a few words about our sponsor, SAP Pioneer. For many of you from banks or insurers listening to this podcast, it's easy to get excited about the innovation we're talking about, but it can be daunting taking the digital leap. How can you build or upgrade to the latest technology to deliver all that competitive edge without risking, literally in some cases, breaking the bank? Well, launched as the financial services spin-off from SAP, Pioneer offers the best of both worlds, combining the agility of a startup with the experience of a best-in-the-class software company. That means future-fit technology that gets you to market fast combined with reliability and scalability. So if you're looking for a new fintech who's a safe pair of hands, check out sappioneer.com. And now we're going to throw to our cybersecurity expert, Nick Ellsmore, who I think I'm going to get to introduce himself. Nick, if you can just give us a couple of lines about who you are and uh, what you do. Sure. So I'm Nick Ellsmore. I am the uh, Senior Vice President for Worldwide Consulting and Professional Services for Trustwave. Uh, I've been in cybersecurity now for 23 years, which in, in cybersecurity terms is a a fair stint. And pretty much my whole career has been uh, starting, building and growing uh, cybersecurity consulting businesses. Uh, so I started my first company in fourth year of university, uh, built that up and sold it to BA Systems uh, and then took a break and then started again and uh, sold uh, the second company, Hyvent, to uh, Singtel Optus in uh, 2018 uh, and ultimately um, sort of have stayed within that group and have moved into uh, the role I'm in at the moment with Trustwave. Lovely. Thank you. So first question for you, 
It's been quite a year for cybersecurity in this region. So what has happened and what, in your opinion, has gone so wrong? Yeah, it, it's a fascinating question to, to try to figure out, like, why now? Like, what, what, what was different? And, and I think, I really think it's just, coincidence is probably the bad word, the, the wrong word for it. I think it's, it's something that we've been expecting was going to happen for quite a while, and it just finally all kind of crystallized at the same time. So it's a case of sort of our luck ran out in uh, 2022, that some of these it's, things it's a, have been coming for a while? It's a, it's a good way to put it. I, I really think it's as simple as that. I think, you know, we, for a long time, I, I, I gave a presentation, I think, back in 2010. So this is 12 years ago now to the uh, High Tech Crime Conference in uh, in Australia. And my presentation's whole premise was around um, Occam's razor and basically saying, why are there not more really serious security incidents knowing what we know about the vulnerabilities that we see day to day. You know, we we do tests and we find ways into systems that have, you know, enormously sensitive amounts of personal information. And yet, despite the fact that we can clearly compromise them and they're open to the internet, those compromises don't seem to actually happen. And my conclusion in that presentation was it's really just it's just luck. It's just the the sheer volume of vulnerability and badness on the internet is so great that you actually have to be reasonably unfortunate to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and end up being compromised. And I think we've just basically tried to ride that too too far and have now ended up with it, as I say, all uh, crystallizing. Is there also an element of some really large uh, attacks, hacks, and even just mistakes were revealed? And then it forced other companies to also reveal what had happened in a more timely fashion. Is that also part of what's playing out here? Yeah, so it, I think that's that's also fair. Um, I think you know certainly if if you go back a few years, the prevalence of attacks being you know you you could either say covered up or just say not being reported because in some cases there wasn't yet a requirement to report them and organizations just decided not to was certainly much higher than it is this year uh, i think uh, we're in a position now where it is broadly accepted that things are going to go much much worse for you as an organization if you don't own up to it as quickly as possible. Uh, and so I think that's definitely driven some of the behaviors where organizations are much more um, willing and enthusiastic about um, about putting their hand up. Was it just Australia that had a bad year this year, do you think? No, I think within Australia, obviously, we have had a particularly uh, interesting 2022. But in terms of data breaches around the world, I mean, they've they've always been there. they Continue to flow at a at an ongoing rate. The uh, the privacy rights clearinghouse in the in the US has been tracking it for for years and years and years. And uh, I don't I don't think that the volumes um, this year are particularly different to to those uh, in prior years. Um, but I think definitely the the visibility of them has massively gone up. Nick, this year we saw a variety of different threats emerging, and in past years. So in past years, the focus was on password compromises and zero-day exploits. 
Whereas this year, it looked more like systemic architectural and procedural weaknesses were being exploited rather than failures in operating systems or packaged platforms. So is the cyber landscape changing and becoming more sophisticated? Well, I think there are a few interesting things that we see over over time in in both the threat landscape and also the the sort of the drivers of compromise in organizations and the way i see it is it's it's one of these cycles where we go you know back and forth and back and forth between different models um you know whether it's centralizing and decentralizing of controls and that that type of thing um or uh, in this case it's you know whether or not attackers are compromising centralized organizations or the decentralized sort of populations that make up the user base of those organizations so the way that i sort of give that example is in the very early days our assumption was that hackers were going to try to compromise banks um, and steal large amounts of money from the banks directly Um, and there were a couple of cases very very early where that had happened and was successful and then I think really the the sort of criminal groups realized that compromising banks was actually hard. Um, they invested very heavily in it very quickly. Uh, and so it became much more cost effective and realistic to target the uh, the customers of banks and actually go after them and try and get small amounts of money from a much larger group of people. It then sort of swung back with uh, things like business email compromise over recent years, where, again, we're trying to compromise an individual organization for tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars, in some case, millions and even tens of millions of dollars, I think, in some of the biggest that have been recorded. And what we're now starting to see is, as some of those are starting to dry up because the processes are actually improving, um, even things like ransomware now and data breaches are actually starting to pivot again. So whereas previously uh, a criminal group would try and extort a business for a lot of money for having compromised their data set, businesses now are saying, we're not going to pay the ransom. And so the criminals are actually contacting individuals within the data set and actually trying to extort them for smaller amounts in order to remove them from the data set before the data set gets released. And so I think there's this sort of constant um, cycle of you know, basically at the criminal business model trying to find the most effective way to get the best return on investment because ultimately the whole thing is just economically driven. It's it's a very uh, efficient and fast-evolving business model. They don't have to have meetings and committees to decide to change tack. Do you think that our data breach laws have kept pace with the actual risks? The data breach laws... I mean, the fact that they change regularly would suggest that they're trying to keep pace. But I I did business law at university and my lecturer at the time had a poster on the wall that said, law moves at a pace second only to geology. And so I think who he who would know this space much better than I do um, would certainly say that it's always going to be very, very hard um, for the law to keep pace with technology and keep pace with you know the the evolving threat landscape that we're in so everyone is trying um and everyone is trying to create uh you know technology neutral legislation that can operate with a, a changing environment it's, it's just hard around those data breach laws do you think much is going to change over the next couple of years uh, it, it definitely will i mean the, the penalties are really the 
one of the key pieces I think that that influence um, influence a lot of the decisions that that organisations are making. Um, if if you look at probably the most successful uh, sort of regulatory semi-regulatory program around controlling information. It's really the PCI DSS, so the payment card industry data security standard, which interestingly isn't regulation from a government regulator. It's actually basically private sector regulation created by uh, the credit card companies to protect that data. And it's it's an interesting model because you know the credit card companies are in a unique position in that they have the ability ultimately to basically withdraw the the right of processing um, payment cards, which from a business's perspective is a really, really severe penalty. And in fact, to, to sort of vary payment costs based on risk profile and things like that. So that model is a, a very, very neat indicator of the fact that if you can build a regulatory structure that genuinely creates a direct cost associated with holding types of information and how you manage that information, you can genuinely change the way that data is stored. No rational organization these days would build their own e-commerce site and just write code to handle credit cards. Everyone now, rational, um, will build it and and use you know external modules that'll basically just offload that processing, offload the storage, offload the handling and everything else. Because it is a much more cost-effective um, way to deal with that problem, and that situation, that um, the creation of that cost-benefit analysis, has been made possible because the regulation they put in place is very, very efficient at allocating cost to organisations that hold that data. Talking about storing highly sensitive information like credit cards, probably the most sensitive information would probably be biometrics. And biometrics are put forward as alternatives to passwords. Do you hold concerns about the use of biometrics if there is concerns around data breaches? And do we have the disciplines necessary to hold that sort of information? Because you can reset a password, but it becomes very problematic to reset a, a, a set of biometrics you know, that have been breached into the dark web. Yes, yeah, it, it it is very problematic to to re- reset your fingerprints. Look, I I don't uh, I don't claim to be an expert on the the way some of those those biometric systems work. Uh, my belief is that if those systems are implemented well, that shouldn't be a problem. The problem ultimately, though, is the piece that I said at the start of that, which is if that system is implemented well. Um, in, in a sense, most of the data breaches that we have today, and even if you look at the ones in Australia over the last few months, um, a lot of the data sets that have been compromised probably shouldn't have been there. You know, that there were, you know, personal information records being stored that probably didn't need to be stored. There were um, people whose records had been retained when they probably should have been expunged because people stopped being clients a long time ago. Um, One of my real beliefs about uh, an area that we're going to get a lot of movement over the the next few years um, is really around data retention. Um, I think we, we went through a period where big data was all the rage and it was basically just get all the data, store it all, and we'll figure out what we do with it later. Uh, I think we are now heading into an age where the costs of that 
are now going to start being assessed differently uh, and organisations everywhere are going to spend a lot of time and a lot of money on burning it down and getting rid of a lot of data that they don't need to hold. How do you think it's going to be assessed now in that case? So in terms of how I think it will be assessed, uh, again, for many, many years, I used to give presentations talking about what would need to happen, what would need to change for uh, behaviours in the industry to be different. And the example I always used to give was around the Ford Pinto, the classic story in the the 1970s, you know, some of which I think is apocryphal, but ultimately a a car that was made with a, a fuel tank that was in the in the back of the car and had an unfortunate habit of even at some low speed car crashes basically bursting into flames and there was a, a well-known memo that was written within um, within Ford that looked at the the cost of the recall that would be required to fix it versus the cost to society of the loss of life and injuries associated with it and those numbers are reasonably well known you know you go to any insurance company they'll give you a number for the value of a cost of life but it's unpopular when that type of thing looks like it's an assessment of one against the other ultimately there was a court case the court case ended up awarding significant punitive damages that ultimately changed that economic equation so it it changed the balance of that assessment i don't think we're going to see that but the interesting thing we've seen in in Australia in the last few months is we've seen uh, a number of the government agencies, so whether it's passports or whether it's uh, the driver's license agencies, effectively coming out and saying, get in touch with us, we'll replace your license, we'll replace your passport, and then we'll bill it on to the organisation who lost the data. And so if you now get to the point where holding a passport number Every, every single one of those passport numbers that you hold now potentially could cost you $300, $400, $500 each. That changes the economics of holding that data. And I think that is the type of, the type of thought process. As soon as there is a very, very clear, easy to chuck it into a spreadsheet and do a calculation, um, I think that's ultimately what's going to result in, uh, in changed behavior. There's something Simon and I have been talking about, and that is how companies are actually going to find all of the data that they're now going to be reassessing (laughs) and then hastily um, Mm. deleting. How challenging is that going to be? So that's always been um, one of the the big challenges. Um, I think a few years ago, um, one of the key concepts that was being talked about was the the five no's of security um and I'll, I'll i'll invariably forget one or more of them as i go through this but you know it was broadly you know do you know um what data is important do you do you know do you know where it is do you know how it's secured do you know how who has access to it and so on and so forth ultimately it's extraordinarily simple and it's a, a simple set of questions to say do you actually know where your data is and who has access to it? But while superficially simple, it's actually really, really hard to to go through that process. To give you a simple example, we completed a project for a uh, a small health insurance organization a number of years ago, many years ago. And we basically went through a process to try and understand this. And 
and okay, so what's you know what's the most sensitive data that 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 you hold? And they would explain the records that existed that were most sensitive, basically you know patient patient health records, patient medical records. So okay, so where are they stored? And they said, well, you know they're stored in this um, this system. You know, it's one system over here. Okay, great. Like we can we can deal with that one system. And then someone in the room would say. Uh, but there's also we when we when we receive them from external for the first time, they're stored on this other file server. And you go, okay, great. So we'll grab the file server as well. It's like, oh, and, and sometimes you get situations where there's a fault and someone raised a ticket to the help desk and they send a screenshot, and the screenshot might have a copy of one of those files. So okay, so now the ticketing system in the IT department is also in scope. And then of course, you know, they come in through email. And even though you have something on the website that says, please don't email us sensitive information, customers do. And so suddenly you end up with this situation where you realize, even though you have a, a policy and a process that is designed so that all the sensitive data is stored nice and neatly in one place, it's everywhere. It's just spread throughout the systems, throughout the processes, throughout the organization. And once you get to that point, it's then very, very difficult to get it back under control. So in practical terms, uh, there are tools. Again, back to the PCI DSS example, there have been tools for quite a while that have basically done data discovery that just sort of crawl through the network, the environment, mail files, and just try and find sensitive strings, you know, try and find credit card numbers, social security numbers, driver's license numbers, um, and then just just try and aggregate where that is so that you can then do something about it. Um, so I think that um, that type of approach is going to be taken. Uh, and in the same way that uh, in the PCI world, you basically have the cardholder data environment. So all of your sensitive cardholder data needs to be within these boundaries. I expect that organizations will get to the same concept of having a sensitive data environment. And all of the sensitive data can only be within those boundaries. And the current fluidity that we have where you know, the data sort of spreads out a long way beyond that, I think is going to get locked down much, much more strictly. Just building on your comment there, we've had enterprises spend a lot of money on enabling their businesses and building lakes and and uh, moving to digital technologies. Yeah, then we have more sophisticated tools being emerging as well. And there's sort of an implicit sort of asymmetry going on here where some of the tools are much more sophisticated than than the architectures and the and the and the and the, and the way that we run our enterprises. Our enterprises are still very manually driven, and they're very you know there's this big monolithic assets that nobody really knows what's going on. Do you see sort of those threats really being magnified? by the emergence of artificial intelligence and you know you've no doubt looked at chat gpt and can i can i literally program an ai to go and hack an organization is that coming the chat gpt is is fascinating and and i think anyone who's spent you know even a little bit of time looking at it and playing with it and seeing what it's capable of can see where this is where this is going you know it's it's not all the way there yet in the sense that you know, it's it's not so simple that you can just say, go to the, this website repository, grab all of the open source software and find me the next log4j vulnerability. It, it's not that far away that something like that is going to be possible. And when you talk about the asymmetry, again, the challenge with the asymmetry of something like that is, uh, in many ways, 
coding a way to find those vulnerabilities or finding a way to find those vulnerabilities is such an order of magnitude easier than solving those vulnerabilities once they've been embedded in you know, an, a near infant number of individual organizations who've you know built things manually and modified them and, and everything else. It's just another one of those situations where structurally the system that we've built is very, very heavily weighted in favor of attackers over defenders. Which potentially would suggest that we may get we may get to a point where um humans writing their own software may be actually too high risk. We may actually say, no, we actually trust the AIs to write the software because the AIs, the AIs can um, can potentially secure it. Yeah, when we get to the point where you know, AI is trying to secure software from AI, we obviously start you know, going down the, the rabbit hole very, very quickly. We do. Um, there are some interesting things that do exist, so I, I, from um, the University of New South Wales in in Sydney has done a lot of work on sort of secure kernels, enhanced Linux, and and all these sorts of concepts where they're actually um, sort of mathematically provably secure systems. There are concepts, there are you know groups that are doing a lot of research in that area for genuinely high security environments where security is fundamental to the functionality of of the system is perhaps a, a more positive way to to look at it. So those types of initiatives do exist. I I do think uh, when you look at uh, security from a sort of philosophical perspective, one of the strange things that we have at the moment is the fact that we have empowered almost every user with the ability to make very, very poor security decisions. And in in many ways, what we need to do is, is take some of that back and actually remove the ability of users to make very, very poor security decisions. It should be a lot more complicated than the user getting a pop-up and just getting the pop-up over and over and over and over again until they click the yes button to make it go away, and then they've just compromised their own security. And we have one more for you, Nick. What keeps you up at night? (laughs) What keeps me up at night? Jet lag. For a long time, the answer would have been quantum computing, quantum cryptography, and you know, this this idea that, again, that sort of computers are going to get to a point where they render a lot of the controls that we have largely irrelevant. I think the whole sort of system that we, uh, we don't necessarily take it for granted, but the whole system that we've built has so many just little quirky gaps that even not necessarily technical advancement or AI or machine learning, just a kid who's just gifted at factoring prime numbers can actually cause us real problems in the way we we run run the economy and run the online economy. So that type of thing, um, I try not to think about it too much these days. Thank you so much, Nick. Thank you for joining us. No, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. We would also like to thank our sponsor, SAP Fioneer. Rock solid technology, bold creativity. I'm Rachel Williamson, and you've been listening to Breaking Banks Asia. If you enjoyed today's episode of Breaking Banks Asia, don't forget to share it on Twitter, leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to our show. This helps us build our audience and support our sponsors so we can continue to bring you a great show every fortnight.